Welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. Brought to you by the Intel Internet of Things Group. Hello and welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, brought to you by Intel. I'm James Kent. I have two guests joining me today to talk about clinical laboratory instrumentation and how the use of computer vision and AI is paving the way for exciting technology advancements in this industry. First, I have with me Stephanie Cope. Stephanie's a strategic tech innovation lead for lab and life sciences at Intel. Stephanie, welcome. Thanks, James. Good to be here. And next up, I have Caleb Keeter with me. Caleb is a lab life sciences solution architect at Intel. Caleb, it's great to have you on as well. How are you doing? Great, James. Stephanie, why are we talking about clinical laboratory instrumentation today? Yeah, great, great question, James. Um, so there's been a lot of changes going on in this industry over the last, uh, I'd say, two to three decades. A lot of that has started with um, kind of the change around some of the um, robotics and automation um, options that are available to instrument makers and designers today. And then most recently, I mean, as we've seen in the last two years with the pandemic, the ability to be able to test accurately and at scale um, is just is just paramount today. Um, and so, so those are some of the pressures that are leading to a lot of changes in this industry. And what do you see as some of the major trends and opportunities in the laboratory instrument market? Yeah, sure. So again, kind of maybe walking you back a bit in time, uh, if you look maybe two to three decades ago, there have been a lot of changes in the way um, folks do basic chemistry tasks. Um, and, you know, automation was really introduced in the, in the 1990s um, with the introduction of liquid handling robotics, another type of uh, robotic options they're being integrated into these instruments today. Um, and so kind of migrating from, you know, a, a multi-channel pipette being, being doing pipetting by hand in the laboratory to total automation um, has vastly changed um, and improved the amount of throughput that these instruments um, can provide um, in, a, in a hospital or clinic setting. You know, I think the second important indicator um, to bring out was probably in the last decade, there've been a lot of regulatory shifts in this industry. Um, one dating back to 2013, if you look at the changes that were made to HIPAA, some of the cybersecurity requirements put kind of added stress on the equipment makers to be able to figure out how to achieve that same throughput um, and level of analytics while keeping a lot of data close to where it's being generated. So at the instrument edge. Um, another important uh, regulatory piece of this puzzle was uh, changes that were made um, to Medicare in, in 2014, um, requiring uh, the hospitals to report out on their test fees and fee schedules in this space. And that put a lot of kind of added pressure on what the, the pricing structure was um, and required uh, instrument makers to be able to achieve much um, higher throughput uh, with the same you know, bomb cost to achieve those same uh, profitability. Um, so I think those are two kind of regulatory landscape pieces um, and technology pieces. And then I think in the last decade, you know, AI and machine learning have really infiltrated every aspect um, of our life. And it's no different in this, this industry as well. I think the chief challenge when it relates to AI and, and machine learning is how they can take advantage of all of the advances that have happened in computer vision and image recognition um, and be able to do this uh, on a very small compute footprint. And so, um, yeah, I think those are three main changes that are, are really uh, transforming this industry. 
And Caleb, uh, Stephanie just mentioned computer vision. Why don't we get into some specifics on computer vision? How can computer vision systems enable better support for diagnostics? So I think diagnostics are, are kind of just the, uh, the first and in, in easiest opportunity to realize. And uh, in, in my background, I've, I've had to deal with like uh, automated equipment in a, in a high volume environment. And a lot of times you're dealing with something like after it's happened, we'd call it, you come upon the, the scene of the crime, right? You know, you, so you find the crime, you find the, the broken windows and the smashed uh, lobby and all the stolen goods or, or what have you. And you're saying, well, what happened here? Clearly we need to fix all this and get it running again. But, but how, do I, how do I deal with this? How do I prevent this? How do I predict this? And so when you start talking about the applications of computer vision, and just vision diagnostics in general, you can start walking the, the timeline backwards and, and very quickly see, ah, exactly what happened. The wrong sized vial was utilized or maybe some aspect of the handling components is slightly worn out and therefore we need to start watching those or watching for some sort of signal to replace those or, or maintain those. So that's a, one aspect of a machine diagnostics, but then there's also checking for validity of results and accuracy of results. I think the need to have like a, a, a precise and scientifically validated result is very important. And then machine learning and AI can, can definitely be part of that puzzle in, in making sure you're not having too much drift going on. Or even when you start talking into the applications of other data sets and, and marrying them together into some really exciting sort of things. And the one that Stephanie and I were just discussing yesterday is the the concept of the uh, you know liquid biopsy where you could look at all the uh, markers in the blood and potentially see like uh, various forms of cancer they've done some lab scale tests of those in universities nothing's really commercially uh, applicable right now for for screening but that, that's of course the dream and again that's utilization of ai to existing data sets and then you start talking about some pretty heavy compute and then when you want to do that at scale, it starts to get really challenging. So you're going to integrate these different potential use cases to compute at, at the site, at the on-premises, hopefully not on cloud, making decisions real time, perhaps getting subsequent analysis as well. So the, it really starts branching off in some very deep places. But primarily, the first case is just simply maintaining running equipment with a high velocity and, and high reliability. Um, but as instrument designs become more complex, does coupling with AI algorithms provide greater advantages? If so, how? Yeah, just to build off what, you know, Caleb said there at the end um, and uptime, right? Uptime in, in the hospital setting or in the clinic is just, is mission critical. Um, and AI alone, you know, the use case of predictive maintenance and being able to predict when a piece of instrument will go down, being able to predict what that root cause is such that you can, you know, have the, the parts staged and ready to repair and minimizing that downtime is just mission critical. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely one use case where, you know, AI will really change the way that um, operations and efficiencies are done in the clinical lab. I wouldn't necessarily just say like designs and, and uptime. I mean, the, the potential workflows get so dynamic and situational depending on what you're trying to, to diagnose. I think the, you know, people are going in and often getting diagnostic tests, like searching for answers, right? And usually now the way it's done is you're searching for a specific answer, like this is a positive or a negative. And in some cases, you already have the most important data set, you know, a sample of blood, perhaps, 
And there's a lot of other tests that subsequent could be done, right? So then you kind of get into that sort of space. How many tests can I run off the amount of blood that I have and how many different data sets can be married? Is there other data sets associated with this person that could potentially be utilized in, in highlighting opportunities or potential risks or, or diagnoses? And in order to do those sorts of things, it's definitely you're talking about an application of AI that hasn't really been seen yet. And a lot of that data infrastructure and integration of laboratory equipment in that environment need to be realized and need to be standardized yet. Absolutely. Now, Caleb and Stephanie, can you share how Intel hardware and software solutions are enabling the use of computer vision and AI in embedded instrument designs? Caleb, let's start with you on the hardware side, and then let's finish up with Stephanie on the software end of things. So on the hardware side, I'd say the thing that um, the Intel company is really specialized in is creating all the different kinds of architectures you might need for the kind of compute that you need, and then providing a uh, platform that you could implement these on, whether you're know, taking a simple example of the basic PC where you can slot in cards that have specific accelerators aligned to the type of compute, to the type of analysis that you need to do. And then when you start talking about scaling, it's something that is fairly easy to do when you have an open standard and the ability to slot in and out alternatives, whether they're from one company or another that follow that common standard. And then when you start talking about long-term roadmaps as well, having that ability to plan and to integrate and to make changes and to expand to different areas is, is very valuable. And it then helps you maintain the use of your existing capital that you've already spent money on and, and breathe new life into that. Yeah, and to build on that, I think from the, the software standpoint, you know, two use cases that kind of stick out to me are the remote manageability piece and then also workload consolidation. So um, starting with remote manageability, uh, you know, Caleb talked about how you might have diverse underlying architectures. And, you know, if you're a field service engineer and you're maintaining all of these different equipments, you know, if you can do that remotely, uh, again, as COVID has been able to show us in the last couple of years, your efficiency can improve drastically. And so I think some of the, the offerings in remote manageability are really, really key in this field, being able to get uh, remote vendor support um, from your field application service. Uh, without being at the side of the equipment is key. Um, I think the second uh, second point of workload consolidation is also applicable here. So from an equipment landscape perspective, these total lab automation systems um, in the in the clinical laboratories um, typically can have you know very modular designs and so hospitals and clinics can kind of pick what components they need um, and scale out these appliances to be you know 10, even a hundred nodes. Um, and there's a huge opportunity to here to be able to consolidate all of that compute. So moving to kind of a software-defined infrastructure, being able to run your applications um, from a central node um, gives you a lot more robustness and also can, can significantly de decrease uh, the total cost to build these instruments. Um, so I think some of the portfolio offerings and uh, workload consolidation and remote manageability are really key in this industry. The only thing I might add to that too that I really like is the possibility to use the hardware or the, the CPUs that you already have. Um, 
how how long are they really being utilized to their their highest potential and you know running at max you know anywhere from 20 to 70 percent of the time so there are some compute cycles that are available for use and with a lot of our software solutions we can find ways to make sure that the uh the the ai lift is appropriate for the hardware that's there on the edge so then you're not talking about moving the data anywhere you're you're taking those actionable insights in that moment right there as soon as the data is acquired and then sending those insights on and that's something that we've seen applied in factory environments as well where you're dealing with like immense amounts of data being acquired across a large scale of machines rather than sending all the data off somewhere to be crunched you start you know doing it at the edge and we're looking for opportunities often to do that for uh for potential partners that that have compute that's not really being fully leveraged at the edge or use the same compute footprint have a slightly upgraded piece of hardware and then you're not necessarily adding a bunch of extra boxes you can use it utilize that cpu footprint to potentially do a lot of additional work that's optimized yeah caleb just to, to build off that i mean one concrete example in the, in the ai use case is around multi-device inferencing so the deployment of these ai models um, on Intel architecture, you know, a lot of folks aren't using their integrated graphics um, for AI and maybe running this on CPU or GPU, but using some of um, Intel's SDKs like OpenVINO, we can do multi-device inferencing. And so getting the most out of the compute resources you already have. Great point. A lot of great points, a lot of great information. Um, I'm going to throw this out to both of you. Looking five years out, how do you see the potential for computer vision and AI factoring into the big picture? I guess I'll take a shot at that first. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Moore's Law, a proponent, an advocate, and an actor of it for, for years prior to what I do now. And so I, I look forward to all of the additional transistors that are going to be cheaper and easier to run in the future and what we could potentially do. And so you're going to see those transistors landing at the edge. You're going to see them landing in the network. You're going to see them landing at the facility level or, or even the cloud. And they're going to be more flexible and more specialized in terms of the sorts of things that you want to use. You can have a very specific sort of uh, workload that you may not have the hardware available for there, but you can send that data set off to get that workload, re workload completed in a timely fashion. Or you can start adjusting your hardware and able to, to complete that there in a very rapid fashion. It's only going to get cheaper and it's only going to get faster and it's going to get more and more ubiquitous. And so when you start having that kind of environment out there, bringing together diverse data sets and having interesting insights that you know can make people's lives better is uh, really exciting. Part of what drives me in, in the role that I'm in now in health and life sciences is thinking about how we can do that to potentially have some pretty significant impacts on people's lives. And it was kind of a a really neat moment, kind of a, a upside of, of COVID testing that I could drive through someplace and swab my nose. The next morning, I'm getting a text on my phone with my detailed results, right? And we're definitely not there in the, the clinical laboratory space across the board. I've definitely been on the other side of where I've had a test and, you know, a week goes by. I don't know where it's at. I don't know when I'm going to get it. The result might show up in a portal. I get no notification. There's all these different portals out there. And I'd like to see that, you know, you know, activation energy to get that information to the to the patient 
and have them really understand its implications, you know, partner with their doctor. I, I'd like to see that to get easier and then bring together all those different data sources and, and really help people get a big picture. And that's where I really see uh, a lot of laboratory uh, data going as well. Yeah, to build on that on the application side, you know, I, what as Kayla mentioned, I think there's two additional factors that we're constantly seeing being integrated. One is around genomics, right, and how kind of our our personal fingerprint is indicating, you know, personalized medicine and, and changing the way um, that patients are treated. Um, and then I think the second piece is so that time to result, right? You go to a drive-through clinic today, you get your nose swabbed, and maybe your results are there in 24 hours, maybe 72 hours. Having that, you know, changed to minutes or, or even seconds is, I think, really the future of the space. Fantastic, uh, Stephanie. How can someone learn more about solutions in this space? How should they reach out for more information? Yeah, feel free to reach out to Caleb or myself directly um, on LinkedIn or via our email. Um, you can check out Intel's Health and Life Science um, Twitter handle um, or check out the Intel website. We've got a great uh, landing page on lab automation solutions um, and clinical chemistry solutions uh, based off Intel portfolio. Well, we're just about wrapped up for today, but ending on a personal note, Stephanie and Caleb, is there anything you're reading, watching, or listening today that you'd recommend to the audience uh, listening? Yeah, I'm, uh, I don't waste money on too many print subscriptions that combine with digital, but the one that I do uh, do that's kind of pricey for myself is the New Scientist. Uh, they always seem to have interesting things at least a week or two, if not longer, before anybody else. And the thing I just caught this weekend that that has me going is they've now taken those Marimo moss balls. I don't know if you're into uh, like aquariums at all, but they're a little round moss ball that people will buy for five bucks off of Amazon. And they're like ornamental and they're, they're hard to kill. But they made a, a very clever little 3D printed baseball size encasement. And then with the power of photosynthesis, you can like drive it around uh, obstacles. So now you've basically got a fully biological robot that you can, you know, have for, I mean, I could probably build one for 20 bucks at this point. And then you can have it go, they have videos of it jumping over obstacles and driving around inside like, uh, you know, ponds or lakes or something. And imagine taking for water quality and just the idea of uh, robots going full bio with no wires is uh it's really neat. I like the idea. And there's plenty of things like that. So yeah, that's that's my recommendation. That's great. I might take it back a little bit more mainstream to something like TechCrunch um, and what's happening in the startup space around total lab automation and clinical chemistry. Um, it's been really interesting to see during the pandemic um, how a lot of startups have pivoted um, towards um, helping with uh, testing and scaling out testing facilities, I'm seeing how they're using, you know, basic automation and process control principles to be able to to scale out COVID testing facilities. Um, some are bio and other startups in this space, so it's a really exciting space. Great recommendations. Uh, once more, Stephanie Cope, Strategic Tech Innovation Lead for Lab and Life Sciences at Intel, and Caleb Teeter, Lab Life Sciences Solution Architect at Intel. Thank you both for joining me today. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Thanks so much, James. This was great. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, brought to you by Intel. Make sure to subscribe to this channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Simplecast to hear more from the Intel Health and Life Sciences Group. I'm James Kent saying thanks again for watching and let's talk again soon.